0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Kelly G is a former professional hockey player and coach and the current executive director of the nonprofit organization Survivors for Change. Kelly has always been driven to make an impact, but it wasn't until surviving sexual abuse at the hands of his former coach that he found his true calling, being an inspiration and motivator for survivors around the world. He hopes to utilize all that continues to come next for him in his journey for justice and peace to change present and future resources and support for all victims.
1: My name is Kelly G. I am the Executive Director of Survivors for Change. I am an athlete survivor of sexual abuse at the hands of my coach and mentor when I was a teenager. I was born and raised on a homestead in Alaska. My mom was born in Missouri and my dad was born in California. They met in Hawaii. My mom was a housekeeper at a bed and breakfast there. My dad was working construction and riding in a rodeo and got an opportunity to go fishing in the Bering Sea and asked my mom if she wanted to go with them. Went and they staked the homestead outside of Homer, beautiful. It's selling it almost short. It's breathtaking. It's an amazing place. Everything is big in Alaska. The weather's big, the mountains are big, the animals are big. I wish I would have appreciated it more when I was younger. I think we all say that at some point of our life when we look back at things. I don't beat myself up too much about that, but I certainly appreciate it more now. Our homestead was built on a stake of land right at Timberline almost 15 miles east of Homer. My family built it with their bare hands, skinning logs by hand, cutting down the trees by hand. It was about the size of most people's living rooms now for the five of us. And we added onto it a bit. We had a barn. We had chickens and geese and goats and dogs. The ducks and the dogs were really one of my big responsibilities on the homestead. Life there, it was challenging. We had like a metal tub. It was basically a horse trough. We would go outside, get snow, heat it up on our coal stove, and dump the warm water into the tub. And then, starting with Dad, then Mom, then Heather, then Tom, then me, we took turns taking baths. We didn't have any running water; there was a well, but it was very limited. We didn't have electricity for a long time. We got some, but that was also pretty limited. So it was pretty rustic. We grew giant potatoes, giant carrots, and berries. We had our own little produce farm there, and then we had our chickens and ducks for ancillary food. We hunted and we fished. We definitely took a lot of the land, but we used it. It was something that we respected tremendously and we didn't abuse. It was an interesting upbringing. My parents were awesome. Taught me a lot of things that a lot of other people wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity to learn. We didn't have TV. There's no internet. Every now and then we would rent a black and white TV from the movie store that was in town on a VCR. And we would see things on there, but we might as well have been watching movies that were about Mars. There was no really relative perspective to that. The school that we grew up in, that was between town and the homestead, we had, fantastic teachers, where they taught us real stuff, real science, real math, not conceptual. It was applicable stuff. That's one of the things that I learned from an early age is to ask questions, lead with my eyes and my ears and not my mouth when it comes to learning. And that's something that I really cherish and has helped me a lot in my life. We didn't have a hockey association in the town where I grew up until I was probably 10. But that didn't stop us from skating. We had frozen lakes, frozen ponds. We'd berm up the snow and make makeshift rinks. I'd been skating my whole life. We would use everything from frozen moose turds, which was one of my personal favorite, to rocks and pine cones as pucks. I was always a pretty talented skater, even before the first time I ever played real hockey. I took athletics very seriously from a very young age. I played baseball and I really excelled at it. And that was actually my first major breakup when I chose hockey over baseball. I remember when we started our first hockey program there on the little outdoor rink that we built. They wanted me to play forward because I could skate so well, but I always wanted to be a goalie. I was a catcher in baseball too. And I was always a bit of an adrenaline junkie, I suppose. They padded me up with old school goalie equipment, two piece chest protector, which is basically just diamond stitched cotton padding over your arms and shoulders and then a catcher's chest protector over the top. I fell in love with it immediately. I was obsessed with the position. I remember seeing Marty Turco playing for Michigan and I was just like, what is that guy wearing and how do I get it? So it was just an obsession of mine. I had no line of sight on what was next in hockey. We played a team from Saldana where I eventually moved. It was probably our second year of having a program in Homer. So I was 11, maybe 12, and did very well. And they were like, come up here and play. I was like, yeah, these guys are way better. I just want to keep playing at a higher level. I knew already that I didn't want to be a fisherman. It was a tough life, but it was a good life. I mean, no disrespect there. I just wanted to play sports. So I took that real blind approach to there's a better place to play a few hours up the road. I'm going to go there. My mom had moved out, which was horrible for my dad, but my mom had left and moved down to the lower 48. Her sister had cancer, so she went down to help her. I can't imagine what that would have been like for her, especially that lifestyle. It just took its toll. She got an opportunity to start a different life, and I'm proud of her for taking it as hard as that was for everybody. I left not long after mom did. She wasn't around a lot when I was a teenager. She was trying to find herself again. No fault to her. That's what she needed. My dad was my best friend. He worked himself literally to death to try to make sure that I had what I needed to keep moving forward. I got resourced that my brother and my sister didn't. I think the whole family really supported the opportunities I was getting and sacrificed a lot for me to have them. I knew how much I was loved and I knew how much support I had there, but it was distant. I didn't see a lot of any of them for a lot of years. I wanted out. I got my taste of bigger buildings, Walmart and Best Buy, video games and color TV, indoor toilets that flushed. And I was like, what is this stuff? They have magic houses that light up. The summer before my eighth grade year, I moved out of my house to Soldatna to play on a better team in a better league with more access against better players. And I did very well. I quickly anchored myself as one of the top players, certainly the top goalie in the area. I had no idea what scouting was, what junior hockey was, what pro hockey was like. I just knew that there was other levels that were better with better players. And I wanted to find a way to play against them and beat them. I was definitely my own worst enemy. My temper was out of control, especially when I was a teenager, not having my parents around and those things around you that kids need, I was probably tough to manage especially for families that were trying to help me when I was younger. It was a double-edged sword for me. My competitiveness definitely has gotten me into some trouble, especially when I was just feral off the homestead, which made things a little bit tough for me. Moving out when you're 13, just turning 14, and then being poor made situations I was in socially difficult. I never found my way into inner circles. But what that also did is that this left me time for lifting weights running and training and practicing, doing everything I could to improve my ability in my game, which I did continue to improve and get better and put myself in a position where I didn't know how to actively get myself discovered, but people kept finding me. By the time I got to high school my freshman year, I was a starting goalie at our high school, which was a good program and a good school. We won a conference championship, which we hadn't done before, against some pretty big odds. So I got some recognition there that whole time. Really, it was just head down, face first. I was never dumb, but I just didn't care. I was able to get through school with the bare minimum, focus on my training, and try to find ways to win. What happened after my freshman year is there was a coach from Anchorage that was like, are you coming to tryouts for the Pacific Coast select team? And I had no idea about that. USA Hockey used to pick their world team from this select tournament, and I wasn't even invited. So I found out when the tryouts were and just showed up. I was 15 trying out for the 16 team, And everybody was like, who the hell is this guy? I had grunky third or fourth hand used equipment. I mean, I looked like I had just crawled out of the woods because I had. And I went in and totally dominated it. For the Alaska tryout, I might have given up two goals the entire time and ended up making the team. So I played for the Pacific Coast team. Then the tournament was in St. Cloud, Minnesota. I ended up going to that and doing very, very well. We actually weren't expected to make any noise and we made it pretty far in the tournament. We even beat the tournament winner and the major favorite. So all of a sudden I started getting letters in the mail and contacted from people. And I was like, what is this? What's the Western Hockey League? I don't know what any of these things are, but people are asking me to come try out for their team. For me, I thought I was getting engaged to go play on these teams. I didn't realize that I'm going to go there and now I'm not the guy. I'm one of many guys who are all the guys from where they come from. And that was a real awakening. So the first letter I got was from the Danville Wings. One of their consulting coaches at the time was a AAA coach in Illinois for Team Illinois named Chico and a very well-known, very successful coach. This was the first one to reach out to me. I've gotten the most contact from there. I'm going to go to Danville and go play on this team this year. So I... Flew to San Francisco where my dad was working that summer and got to see my dad for a day. We only had enough money to get me there via bus. So I took a Greyhound bus from San Francisco to Chicago and then from Chicago to Danville. I brought my bag of clothes with me and my gold gear and that's all I owned. I remember coming into the city, waking up, It had been six in the morning, sun was rising, and seeing the buildings and the sunrise in Lake Michigan and I couldn't wrap my head around it. It looked like a painting. Seeing the tall buildings like that, I was just like, this is a totally different world. Chico was the one that got me from the bus station when I got to Danville. That was the beginning of very unfortunate events that happened later. This was really the beginning and the end of hockey for me. Went to tryout, didn't make the team. Didn't know where to go. I'm in Illinois. I have no idea what to do next. My dad actually was able to come out and see the end of the tryouts and drove our little Ford Ranger that we had out there. He left me with the truck. I don't know where to go, but I know that there's ice in Chicago, so I'm gonna just go to Chicago and find a rink and just start skating again. So that's all I knew what to do. So I found a rink on the south side and I started going and I was living in my truck. Chico had a goalie school in Chicago. He had found out that I was in town just living in my truck, skating at random rinks. Somebody came to introduce themselves to me at this rink and was like, hey, come to this goalie school. He remembers you. And I hated the guy at this point because to him, he just cut me and uprooted my life. I was 16 years old and I was just like, you think you're better than me? So they drug me kicking and screaming to his camp the first time. And he was like, I'm gonna give you a job. You can train here. I'll train you. You can work at the school at the same time. I'll give you a little bit of money and you can stay with me. You can't live in your truck. I didn't think anything of it. I've been living on other people's couches for years at this point. This guy is a famous coach. To me, the level he was coaching was basically the NHL. It was the show. And I'm getting training. Grooming and stuff started immediately. I had no idea what was going on. When it came to social interactions and understanding of relationships,
0: Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. It's easy to get caught up in resolutions and how we can do better in the future, especially as a new year unfolds. However, I've always been a much bigger fan of reflection instead. And what better place to reflect than in therapy with the help of a licensed therapist? I have never been shy about sharing my personal experience in talk therapy, as it's helped me navigate some of life's most difficult tragedies and traumas. Therapy has always offered me a healing space to share and shift my perspective. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to fit conveniently into your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists anytime for no additional charge celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash WCN today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WCN. Don't forget, visit betterhelp.com slash WCN to get 10% off your first month.
1: The rumors about Chico started back in the 80s when he was coaching for the University of Minnesota but nobody told me the rumors. There was one family in particular, the son of the family was at the same tryout that I was. That's where I met him. I wish I could tell you his name and celebrate his family because they did everything they could to keep me away from Chico. Everything was conceptual at that point though. Chico was never proven guilty on anything. Anytime the rumor mill started, things got out, it was just squashed immediately. When he asked me to come, this other family right away was like, no, come stay with us. And I was like, no. I'm going here with this guy. He wants to help me. He's going to help me. He's going to train me. So I moved into Chico's place. And it was fun. Took me to dinners. Took me to the movies. I had old clothes from Goodwill and hand-me-down stuff. So he got me clothes, which was cool. I never had new clothes. Took me to Second City and the comedy shows. I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. to me. And pretty quickly, it turned into, well, What do you say we go to a strip club? And I was like, I'm not old enough because I was 16, going on 17. He's like, Don't worry, I know the guy there. So I was like, Okay, let's go. Bought me lap dances. I thought I was a rock star. He started telling me about this good old boys' club that he had access to because of his status, where he could make a phone call and one of the strippers would come over and give you oral sex. And then he was like, But you have to be blindfolded. There's no touching. Gave me all the list of rules. I was definitely nervous. And at first I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I pushed back on it a little bit. But pretty quickly, he got me to break. He made the phone call and he was like, you're new to this. So I get to go first. You have to wait in the bathroom. Went into the bathroom. I heard the front door open, shut. And then his bedroom door open and shut. So I was in there, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then he came and got me and said, okay, it's your turn. So going into the room, and this is the first time I encountered the blindfold, which was like a nightshade, the sleeping thing you put over your eyes, then a bandana, and then a scarf. He told me, cross your arms, no touching, have fun. So here i walk out. The door is opening again. I'm sitting there very nervous. A uh, person comes in, doesn't say anything, takes off my pants and everything. I was so nervous, I kind of freaked out. I was like, can't do this, please stop. When I did that, the person in the room split right away, like a bolt of lightning. I hear the door shut, I can't remember what he said, but he yelled something at me from the other room and I take blindfold off, came out and he was furious, absolutely furious, and really went at me for more or less breaking the rules and not going through with it. I would never seen him like that before. It was really the first time I ever saw his temper. Looking back on it, I felt like a kick dog. I just kind of went and curled up into the corner and I was just like, oh my God, what did I just do? I ruined everything. I'll make it right. And I basically begged for forgiveness at that point. Soon after that, he postured it again. He's like, but you screwed up last time, so you're going to have to be restrained. I really didn't like the idea of it, but I was determined. He basically was like, look, this is what the guys do. You don't get it. Or maybe you're just not man enough. That kind of stuff. And I was like, I'm going to do this. So when it's my turn to go into the room, put the blindfold again, but it was a little bit more aggressive, certainly tighter, more restrictive. And then he added a bag over my head. He tied my hands behind my back at the wrists and then used the belt around my ankles. So I went through with it. And after that, it got easier, to be honest. And things ramped up. Each time it got a little bit more aggressive. He started adding alcohol in the mix. And I remember one time in particular feeling not present, just real foggy. And he was like, You must have just drank too much. You don't have any body fat. But then the next time it was like the lights went out. When I woke up after that, there was some damage that was done and it was really painful. I'd never done anything like that. I was so afraid of being ridiculed and ruining this opportunity that I just did as I was told and did my bidding. It went on quite a while, started taking me on trips. I ended up playing in a team outside of Toronto and he came up there. He said that this is a network and this is happening in other places, but I'm pretty sure that he was prostituting me out at that point. It wasn't until I met my girlfriend who became my wife that I was really able to get this process stopped. stop. So it went on for a couple of years. I didn't know it was abuse. It was years before... Really, anybody even mentioned the rumors to me. And the first time I heard about his ominous past was when I was being bullied by somebody for it. So I wasn't listening. My level of denial and disassociation was pretty noteworthy. It was a survival experience that I didn't realize I was going through. When we talk about emotional distress and these types of things, too often it's emotional injury or mental injury that you experience from these types of traumatic events. There's very real science around that. And I certainly continued to injure myself for a long time. My level of self-sabotage was epic. The only place that I was finding any level of joy or positive feelings was from what I was doing for other people. Once I got into my early 20s, I can remember being like, oh my God, this happened. This is real. It was like a light bulb turned on and exploded into darkness. It was like, put it all away. Chain it up, push it down, lock it up. And then I just convinced myself that I was inventing it. There's no way somebody that cares about me this much would do something like that to me and lie to me and betray me like that and hurt me like that. And I remember even having the thought about, I call it the time, where I just can't remember what happened next. And the feeling when I did come to and I'm like, I was raped. And I'm like, nope, no, no, no. That didn't happen. You're exacerbating this. You're making it up to try to justify it. I went on that constant roller coaster without getting off. It was terrible. So I was giving myself to other people through work, through effort, and then I was numbing myself with alcohol, which became a real problem for me for a long time. The other thing that was really horrible that was a product of the abandonment, the hurt, the betrayal, I was ruthlessly jealous. I just thought everybody was out to get me and everybody was going to cheat on me. Made me a toxic partner. I was unknowingly taking how I felt about myself and what was going on inside and putting that outwardly of all the things that I regret. And I wish I would have known. I wish I would have understood this earlier. I was not okay. If You would have met me a couple of years ago. I was a shell of a person. I was drunk angry and obsessed with the fact that I'm alone, I'm going to be alone. This is what I get. I was on a real bad spiral, left my family, left my company, left my career, moved to the mountains in Colorado. It took me until my thirties to free myself of it for my entire adult life. I refuse to acknowledge what happened as an adult man. The long lasting effects of how it's made me feel is a very real thing you're not just a thing, which is one of the things I struggle with to this day. On a daily basis, Is just feeling like I'm a thing. I have no value. That was taken from me. This happened to me just because I'm a plaything for somebody else. And my only value was in being pretty. So many others struggle with that same feeling. I got to the point where I was giving myself every reason I possibly could in my own life. I was obsessed with it for years. I spent a long time very much in that place. By the time Katie Strang from The Athletic got to me, almost three years ago exactly, I suppose, I was sitting in my subterranean apartment, drinking my face off. Got half of a bottle deep of tequila, and I had my gun out on the table, and I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm going to call him, I'm going to confront him, and then I'm going to do it. So I called him, and we hadn't talked in a long time. He's all chipper and happy to hear from me. Wanted to tell me about his new book. I was like, look, I got something I need to ask. The way he just said what to me, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even confront him. That really was a catalyst for me to go deeper into my darkness. When Katie called me, no idea who she was. Um, drunk again in my apartment. She called and she was like, I have to ask you about something and it's going to be a tough question. She asked me. About Chico and the rumors surrounding it, she had discovered that they aren't just rumors and that she was pointed in my direction. I was one of the names that people were like, you have to talk to this guy. And I basically said, thanks for the phone call. I'm just the tip of the spear and hung up. I can't remember now. I'd have to ask her how long it took for me to go back to her and say, okay, maybe we should talk. Feels like it was forever. It might have been minutes, might have been weeks. I do recall making a deal with myself where it was like, you already chickened on this. How many times? Leave this place at least a little better than when you got here. Be honest and just tell the truth. That was my goal with Katie's story to tell the truth finally and not hide from it and say, I'm sorry to everybody that I hurt with my falling apart. I was like, I can tell this story and then I can go. That's it. And I was. Committed to it. It Took months for us to get through working through the story. Katie put an incredible amount of time and effort and energy and care into this. Now I look back and I can see how she was also nurturing me, checking on me. I can't imagine what that woman's been through, the path that she's gone down and the holes that she's climbed into to do the important work that she has. After these months of that journey, the story comes out. I did try to go to my family. When the story was actually released, which was a disaster, not because of them, because I have a full nervous breakdown. I was only able to really be there so they could protect me from myself for a few days. And then Mike Sacks shows up with his golf clubs. Mike's story is another one that you should hear sometime. Mike was one of the top prospects to ever come out of the state of Illinois by a long shot. He had a full ride scholarship to go play at the University of Minnesota as a kid from Illinois, which was unheard of especially in the 80s. An incredibly highly touted prospect. Incredible skater to this day. You should see him skate. It's like watching a paintbrush on a canvas. They had it robbed from him by Chico. Really sad story. It just breaks my heart. Mike took some real steps. He wrote a letter to Safe Sport. So did Chris Jensen. Chris is another one of Chico's victims and a survivor. Chris has been a long time actively trying to find ways to Work towards prevention in this space. Imagine the walls that he ran into nose first over and over again at the time. Post article with Katie coming together with our survivor group. We did take legal steps.
0: Resources and help are available twenty-four hours a day at the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which can be reached at one 800 656 4673 and the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You are not alone. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget, visit slash WCN today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, WCN to get 10% off your first month. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next.
1: Started with The Athletic and Katie Strang. And then from there, CBS here in Chicago did an incredible investigative series on our story. There's a wake of destruction. Through storytelling, this allows for us to also share that this didn't just happen to me. And this didn't just happen to the other victims. This happened to everybody in my life. Every one of them was taken advantage of.
0: What came next is a broken cycle media production co-produced by Amy B. Chessler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at BrokenCycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.